Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Today's guest, Megan Hamilton, is a public speaking coach for women with speaking anxiety. She is a classically trained actor and a professional musician, and she has used her technical understanding and 25 plus years of performance to create a public speaking system that works. And I am delighted to have her on the show today because when we first spoke, what I learned from her was that the system that she teaches really connects with women needing to find their voice and get comfortable using their voice and learning how to use their voice in a strong, powerful way. So with no further ado, I want to say welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Cynthia. Well, I am so glad that you are because this topic of women and being able to access and use their voices is really important. Because oftentimes what I hear from women in in personal safety situations is just like, I don't know what to say, or I try to talk and my voice shakes. And so I think that the work that you do is really well aligned with what I do. And it's kind of surprising because you might not think that somebody who teaches public speaking would actually have a strong connection to somebody who teaches self-defense, but we do. Yeah, when I first learned about you, it was one of the first things I thought was, oh, we really align in a lot of ways in terms of being able to speak up for yourself, learning confidence and skills to be assertive. And I think that those those align really well with, yeah, defense. Well, I am looking forward to digging into that in some good detail with you. But before we get to those questions, I have some kind of fun ones to start off with. So you ready for that? Yeah. Okay. So if you were an instrument, what would you be? I would be a guitar. What kind of guitar? <laughs> I would be my guitar, which is a Martin series acoustic guitar in the 15 series. I really express myself through my guitar and it's always been a great outlet for me musically. And so I already feel very connected to it. You know, an acoustic guitar is, is wooden. And so when you, you know, when you touch it, you sort of feel like you're, you're joining forces with something. And so the first thing I think of is, of course, my guitar, because it, it already sort of partially does feel like me. <laughs> so that guitar sounds like it's a very special one to you. How long have you had it? It is very special to me. I've only had it for a few years. Before that, I bought my first guitar a long time ago. And I had played on that one for many years, recorded uh, my first few records with it as well, but it, it was limiting. And so, you know, it was a very unique guitar as well, but it didn't have sort of the bigness that I wanted and the, the precision of, of craftsmanship. So this one came along a few years ago and it happened to coincide with me doing a play with a really good friend of mine who has since passed away. And she paid me a lot of money to do this play, which I was not expecting. And so I was really excited to sort of have this 
extra money. And at the exact same time, the producer I was working with on a record said, hey, my friend is selling this guitar. It's, you know, and it has a history of its own. Would you be interested in it? And I was like, oh, yes, obviously, this is Kismet. Yes. And so I bought it and I have been playing it ever since. So I would say, yeah, I, gosh, it's hard now because time is, time feels so strange in this, in this pandemic, but I would say four years I've had this guitar. Wow. And so it sounds as though your relationship to the guitar has a lot to do with its voice. Is that right? Yes. As soon as I started playing it, you could just feel the resonance. And so, you know, I talk about this a lot with, with vocal training as well, but you can really feel, I mean, essentially vibes, <laughs> sound waves that are being created from, from an instrument. And you can really sense when they're rich and full and last a while. And so this guitar, and you know, I don't want to speak poorly of my previous guitar because I do feel very attached to it as well. But this one, it's just a bit deeper and it rounds everything out quite nicely. Oh, that's really cool. I am, I am a singer, but I have never learned how to play any instrument other than the piano. And so I've never had that kind of a relationship with an instrument where it, it felt like it was another being that I was interacting with. Well, you know, with your piano training, it's, it's actually a really easy pickup to another instrument. And I did the same thing. So I took piano lessons when I was little for years and years and years. And then when I decided to pick up the guitar, I basically sort of translated everything in terms of thinking of the piano keyboard in my brain as I was starting to understand how to make music on the guitar, if that makes any sense. And so once you sort of have a basic understanding of music, it's not as difficult to to move on to, to another instrument. Well, that may be something that I pick up once I actually retire and and have more time to do it because right now it's either working on my business or dealing with all my German Shepherd puppies. <laughs> well, that would keep you very busy. Yes, that's been my entire focus during the whole lockdown period because they were born on March 18th. So, oh, we just got a new rescue dog at the beginning of February, right before everything hit, and she is part German Shepherd. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Well, ask you like what is the biggest change in your life due to the pandemic is it related to the dog well no this has been a time of very big change for me in fact I I gosh where do I start uh, we lost somebody important in our family a couple of weeks ago and that was not a surprise it's been coming for a year but that was you know um, a shift and I also recently uh, submitted my resignation to my longstanding job. That was a big shift. Yeah. And the dog. <laughs> and I also was, was teaching a college course. I was asked to teach a college course this past winter. And so I was doing that on top of my job and taking a business course that just finished this week. So, I mean... It's been a huge time of considerable shifts for me, which now this week is sort of the first time that I feel a little bit 
settled because there are so many balls in the air for so long that now I'm I'm finally sort of relaxing into moving forward and thinking of my life a little bit differently with having you know sort of allowing these changes to be absorbed but the dog has been an incredible asset to us to our family she's so loving and makes us go outside she had a litter of puppies herself from what we gather last December sort of a couple months before we got her she had nine babies so she's been an incredible addition to our family during this time well it sounds like a lot of changes you know some endings and some beginnings all at the same time and I know that can be really disorienting so it's wonderful to have a a dog that you can kind of lean on for that unconditional love and companionship and uh, I'm glad that you have her because that certainly has been one of the things that has helped me get through times of a lot of upheaval and and shifting is to just have that steady companionship where like nothing's really demanded but just lots of love is given so totally and and you know she just when she wants to have some love she'll just come up and stick her head on your lap and say let's let's go now come on I want some tasks and you're like okay great I'll stop what I'm doing and and give you some love that sounds great yeah a little life lesson there you know if you (laughs) yeah ask for it (laughs) yeah that's it you've got it that's right so what's your favorite self-care practice you know I really love tarot cards and I have started over the I, I was really into them in high school as you know a lot of people are and then I I was given a deck and I you know I I, I enjoy the pictures and I've always it was sort of enjoyed the symbolism behind a lot of it and I really you know over the last several years sort of every once in a while I would pull them out but probably over the last year and a half I started using them more regularly and the way I see it is as an opportunity for me to, using the archetype of tarot, as an opportunity for me to get really clear about how I feel about something. So if I'm not sure about a decision I have to make or whether something's right for me or sort of what's just generally what's happening in my life, you know, I'll pull a card or do a series of cards and I use how I react to the card and what I read about the card as an opportunity for me to understand how I feel about what I'm trying to figure out, if that makes sense. And so it's less sort of ethereal or, you know, otherworldly, but more using that as a starting point for getting clear with my intuition. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I love that. I love idea of you know basically using them as the gateway to your own intuition Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. that's awesome yeah yeah I I, I'm really finding it and it's also sort of a a ritual and a practice which I find really helps to keep me centered as well do you have a favorite deck yes I I like the um well you know I don't even remember what it's technically called anymore I can look at it It, I used to it's the it's the original the one we most of us know it's it's Pamela Coleman Smith's artwork this is the Rider Waite deck I think it's called yeah the Rider Waite deck and so neither Rider nor Waite 
is Pamela Coleman Smith's name, and she's the one who did all the artwork for all of the cards. So I just call them the Pamela Coleman Smith deck now. <laughs> oh, neat. Well, I, I'll have to look that one up. I try to not ask questions like that because I have several decks myself and I really don't need more um, <laughs> well enough as it is, but I always, I always like to look at new ones. So mm-hmm. if I know that one, I'll have to look it up. So what advice would you give young women today that you wish you had had when you were in your twenties? Stand up and be visible. Say what's important to you. And don't worry about how people will respond to you. And now just to clarify, and especially because this is, you know, uh, because of the specific podcast, I'm not talking necessarily about situations where you might be in violence. There's a whole other thing to think about with that. But in general, your voice is important. And a lot of people are going to try to make you think otherwise. And you have to keep sticking with your own intuition, your own gut, and the things that are important to you, because you don't get polished when you don't practice. And so you have to spend time saying things out loud, talking about your message, so that you can keep making it better. And if you're too afraid to do that, you won't have the experience of getting really clear on who you are earlier than, let's say, your 40s. And it's so hard for young women because we face a lot more difficulty and challenges. There are a lot of biases against young women and and their voices and and whether or not what we have to say is important, even still today. And so just to speak up and and keep practicing and get really clear with who you are because that that nothing serves you better than that. Yes. Oh, that really resonates. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, have you had an experience in your life where you felt like you were being silenced? Oh, yeah. Like so many times. (laughs) I think most of us have. I'm teaching a course right now called Big Voices for Women. And, you know, we all go around the circle and talk about times when you've noticed and whether or not. And and so this is the tricky part, too. And this is why I, I keep trying to practice getting really connected with my intuition because all of us at one point or another have walked into a room and thought, whoa, what's going on here? Why do I feel very strangely in this room? And you, you, your first thought might be, oh, I'm the only woman. I'm getting a lot of strange reactions from the people in this room. And, and most of us, the first thing we do is say, oh, that's just me. That couldn't possibly be what it is. I've created the situation in my head and then we work against our intuition and try to turn it into some kind of fault of our own. So yes, and I, I've definitely had that experience many times, but certainly as a musician, I mean, you know, I've always been really clear about how I wanted to record music and how I wanted to convey my messages and my songs. And I, I've definitely been talked down to or, you know, had things explained to me where I'm like, why are you, I know I know this? Why would you Why would you think I don't know this? Or why are you telling me this? Or or I want you know I remember once <laughs> I remember once I was getting ready for a show and the sound technician at this particular venue 
I was wearing my guitar and he came up and started to tune my guitar while it was on me. <laughs> and I very not politely, because I was super mad, was like, what the F are you doing? <laughs> like, so yes, I have, I have felt, I have been spoken down to. I have had very strange experiences at work that I 100% know that my male colleagues have not experienced. You know, I, I don't think you get to be a woman in this world without having one, but most likely several experiences where you are not treated the same because you're a woman. Yeah. I mean, those examples that you've just given are really fascinating because the the first one that you were talking about, about going into a room where like something just feels kind of off, but you don't quite know what and how easy it is to sort of try to talk yourself out of it and say, oh, it's probably not, not, you know, it's just my imagination, right? That is exactly what happens in the whole realm of personal safety and self-defense is, you know, when, yeah. when we have that bad feeling about a person or a situation, we are so good at rationalizing it away and coming up with reasons why it probably isn't true. And that's how we end up in really bad situations because, as you were saying, just dishonoring your intuition in that moment can be really costly. And um, yeah. so that's a really interesting parallel that you drew right there. Is that something that you work with people on? Yes, we validate our experiences. And so when we work together in a group, just as women, you don't have to have that. You know, even recently, I had a conversation with somebody where I was talking about not wanting to walk home by myself at 9:30 or something and they and they were like what do you mean why and I said you know I'm just not I'm not comfortable in in uh I'm just not comfortable doing that and I said well, what do you think is going to happen and I said oh my god are you kidding me like, <laughs> I'm not having this conversation right now I'm sorry that you haven't lived for 46 years in this world as a woman and perhaps have never thought about that before but I'm not going to spend waste my time explaining this to you I'm very comfortable with my choices and uh and you be you, I guess, because sometimes it still makes me so angry that we're in a place where, you know, we're walking around deciding whether or not we can go for a run safely at six in the morning. And there's a whole entire half of the population who don't have to worry about this. And so invalidate our experience. Well, I've never had that happen. Well, of course, you've never had that happen. It doesn't happen to you, but it does happen to a lot of other people. And so you know, as you say, that's part of the reason why we stopped trusting our intuition is because you would have brought this up to somebody and that, and somebody would have said, Oh, you're making that up. Oh, you're imagining things. You're fine. Everything's going to be fine. And you're like, I don't think that's true. I think I actually do need to worry about some of these things. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, being able to to say, well, it may not be your experience and you may not agree with it. And you may think I'm, I'm overreacting or being a hysterical woman or something, but I trust myself. I'm going to trust my intuition. Yeah. And you know, what we always say in the self-defense courses is that there's no downside to listening to that bad feeling and taking action to keep yourself safe. But there can be really big downsides to dismissing it or to, you know, setting it aside because somebody else says you're being ridiculous you know, you can really end up in a really bad situation because of that. So I love that that is something that you work with. Yeah, definitely. 
definitely trusting your intuition and, and knowing, feeling good about what you know to be true and yeah. not caring if other people believe you or not. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, the other thing that you brought up, and, and I will admit, you, you might have heard a clunk as my jaw hit the table when you said that you were actually wearing your guitar when somebody, <laughs> when a dude came over and tried to, was on you. Um, I was like, wait, what? Seriously? Such an incredible example of a boundary violation. I mean, on every level. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about how you, you work with people in the area of setting boundaries, because I mean, definitely you being able to speak up and use your voice is a part of that. So like, how do you, how do you work with boundaries? Well, I mean, certainly I, I advocate setting boundaries for yourself and sticking to them, but I also really advocate calling things out very plainly. So, you know, at the time I was sort of shocked that this was happening and I just, I reacted angrily. And now I think that probably what I would, what I would rather have done is say, why are you tuning the guitar that's already on my body when I'm a musician? Right? Just say it plainly. Why would you think that this is appropriate? And same at work when, you know, um, when you've got the office bully or the, the, the person who keeps interrupting you when you're trying to give a work presentation, just call them out on it. Sorry, you keep interrupting me. Is, is there a reason why? Or could you please stop interrupting me? I'm trying to give a presentation here. Call it out plainly because half the time, you know, people sort of aren't expecting to be called out on their bullshit. And saying it plainly can can diffuse the situation really quick. They sort of stick their tail between their legs just to bring it back to a dog analogy and, and go and slunk off in the corner. And that sometimes can be the fastest way to stop having to deal with an office bully or, or somebody who's not valuing you in the way that you should be valued. Yes. And, and what I hear from a lot of women, and I'll confess that in my younger days, I, I felt this way too, is that I was just afraid to speak up and say something like that because I didn't want to get called bitchy. I know. Yes. That's, and who cares? I mean, now at 46, I can say that, but I, I didn't, you're right. I didn't feel that way. And so we were talking about earlier, you know, what would you say to your younger self? Don't care what other people think. Who cares if somebody thinks you're bitchy? Literally, what does that do for you? How does that affect you? It doesn't. The only person that you should really care about is yourself in terms of how you feel about you. Yeah, it's a tricky thing because, you know, the fear is quite often a legitimate fear, you know, that if I speak up and I set a boundary and I tell somebody to stop doing something or to move away or something like that, that somehow that is going to rebound and have really negative consequences later. And you know, that may or may not be true, but it's important to understand like how big the issue is, number one, because uh, some things are trivial and some things are really important. Mm -hmm. And I might make a choice for a really trivial issue to just kind of let it go by, but there are other issues that are so meaningful and, you know, where allowing that concern about what possible future consequences might be to determine, you know, that I'm going to be inactive in that situation. It's just, it's just too big of a thing for me to let that happen. And it is, it is worth potentially paying a price further down the road for me to set that boundary and hold my space, you know, whether physically or emotionally or you know, psychologically. But I think we don't often 
really even think through the process of, you know, what is it, what boundary is it that's being transgressed? What ways can you deal with it? What might be some of the consequences and how might you deal with those? And is it, is it worth setting the boundary or is it not? Yes. And, and, and again, I just, I, I want to clarify that I'm referring to, you know, more innocuous situations, certainly where there's not violence on the table as a potential follow-up to to speaking out because definitely there's women around the world too who that is a, a huge factor for and, and speaking out or speaking up can lead to that and and you know as you say maybe in that case the best thing to do is to just sort of leave it yeah I, I always want to clarify that because because again we're talking about women and so we're 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 talking about a whole different set of potential yeah consequences rather than just you know having your boss talk to you or something something like that yeah i had a young woman that i spoke with who was describing her work environment which is uh, sort of in a industrial engineering environment and so she's one of the very very few women in the entire company and she's also in her 20s and very attractive and very professional and what she was finding was as she was out on the industrial floor area some of her colleagues would put their hand on her back and sort of slide it downwards and and she she always was torn between do i say something about that or do i not because i don't want to become known as the as the one who always causes a problem in quotes and like can't get along because it's kind of a guy's society and and that kind of thing and and so it's just for me it was a very good example of the dance that women have to play when a boundary gets transgressed and i think it is one of the very big things that that contributes to us being very reluctant to express ourselves and use our voices and speak up as because we we have this concern which is sometimes quite a legitimate valid concern that if we do, there's going to be some major blowback that's going to be worse than the actual little boundary infringement that happened. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's always the, I feel, and I don't know if you feel this, when it happens, and it doesn't happen as often as it used to, when it happens, I always think, oh, man, now I've actually got it. Now I've, not, only, not only did this happen, and it's, it's demoralizing and humiliating and you know, difficult to navigate. Then I have to deal with it. Like then I actually have to deal with talking about it or taking it to my boss or taking it to the police or, you know, all of the other things that we have to do. And there's this whole secondary set of commitments that you have to make in order to have any kind of positive outcome from, from standing up for yourself. It's, it's not just, you know, usually it's not just sort of in the moment shutting it down, although that can happen and it's so awesome when it does. But there's a follow-up to it, you know, the, the strength of, of heart that you have to keep to, to see something through to the end. And you didn't ask for that. You just wanted to go to work that day. Yes. Yes. And that that's the source of huge resentment. And and again, you know, in the self-defense world, this is it is all self-defense, right? It is it is protecting oneself from harm in any form, really. 
But when an incident happens, like the really important thing to understand is that like you didn't choose that, you know, as you just said, it was the other person who opted to do the thing that was a transgression. And we're somehow, we end up feeling as though it's our responsibility that it happened. And then we end up having to deal with all the aftermath and that ends up being very costly sometimes. So it's really important that we understand what our own worth and value are and that we make a commitment to ourselves to really take a stand when there are transgressions like that, even if there's aftermath that we have to deal with. So that's, that's really important. So I'm really glad that you, you brought that up. That's a really, that's a cool, cool place to go in the conversation. I would like to bring it back a little bit to your background and learn, you know, a little bit about what your history is and why it is so important to you that women know how to use their voices well and how to speak up and be heard. Sure. So uh, I'm a classically trained actor. I went to theater school many years ago with the idea that I was going to be an actor. And even while we were in school, so many of us would say, yeah, this stuff is really important. I mean, learning how to use your voice properly or how to speak well, it seemed to us that it was these were skills that everybody should have. And so I, I've always kept that with me, even though my journey has led me in a bunch of different directions. I did theater for a little while, then I got more into producing and then writing, and eventually I just put all my focus in music. And then a few years ago, I at a university where I work, noticed that the students were doing these oral competitions and I asked who was helping them with their presentation skills and nobody was. They would have coaches for their teams, but the coaches wouldn't necessarily give them presentation skills training. So I, I sort of got excited by that idea and I said, you know, I'd really like to revisit my theater training and see if I could come up with something to help them really nail the presentation and they were very keen on that so that that started that and I said gosh I think we're like seven years ago now maybe even eight anyway so that's where it all started and when I started coaching these students I was noticing that my energy was so high even afterwards sometimes it's, it's grueling sort of you know having to focus and really pay attention and give specific and minute detail but I would be I would feel so good for hours afterwards. Every once in a while, if I really helped someone, I'd feel great for days. And so over time, I thought, this is actually something that I, I think I might really enjoy pursuing. And probably about three years ago, I launched my business, UBU Skills. I started going outside of the university where I sort of had this, this pool of, of work and pitching to local people, whether I was doing, I developed a workshop or just coaching one-on-one and that built up over time. And then I started to think really specifically about what I wanted to do or what my place is in this world, because I've always been somebody who felt I was part of the world. And what I mean when I say that is I felt a responsibility to help elevate the world. I wanted to do something positive in the world. And, I, and I've always felt that way, whatever I'm doing. And I realized that the more I worked with women, the more excited I got and, 
and notice how many more challenges we face as women just because we're women. And so then I started to do some research into why that was. And I, that's when I stumbled upon Mary Beard's incredible book, Women in Power. Have you read that book? I have not. I was just going to make a note. It's so good. It's basically two speeches that she gave at different times, just transcribed into a book. It's a short read, but it is jam-packed. And she's such a champion of women. And she goes back in, in history to some of the earliest recorded documents. And so back to the days of the forums where, you know, public speaking was sort of the skill that people were interested in and it was developing into this, into this whole thing and there was debates and you'd go to the public forum and sort of check out what was happening. And one of the earliest pieces of, of recording, which was, I guess, on a, on a tablet, talked about why women shouldn't be included in the forum. <laughs> like, actually. Yes. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it talks about our voices. It talks about that we're not as intelligent, you know, like it just goes on and on and on. And so you start to see where, you know, I have clients and, and friends who have, you know, YouTube videos, for example, and they get comments on their voice all the time. Oh, I don't like the sound of your voice or your voice sounds like this. You should try this. Or, and you know, what, what makes people think that they can do that? That they can go in there and, and, and feel comfortable as though that is a thing that we do talking about how somebody's voice sounds. And it's right there. I mean, 2000 years ago, that was written into the fabric of our history and has been passed down for generations and generations. And whether we choose to acknowledge that or not, most of us are unaware of it. Certainly that's what we're fighting up against. And you've got these sort of invisible biases as women that are huge challenges. And so then I just got really, really passionate about that. (laughs) And that's when I started to develop a public speaking course specifically for women and sort of realized that I wanted to to focus on women specifically in terms of coaching. And and I do coach men and and certainly in my in my workshops and I and I coach I have men who are clients as well. But all of my sort of marketing and you know all of the signal boosting is towards working with women because I think and I think most of us are you know aware of this we're in such a weird time in history and certainly for the past three years or thereabouts, women have really been villainized. And what we're finding is in terms of the pandemic, the people who are really performing well and taking care of business are the women. And there's so many articles about this in the media. And it just helps solidify for me that we need to hear from the voices that we haven't heard from. And those are the underrepresented groups. And it, so it's, it's women, it's people of color, it's the LGBTQ community. It's, it's the voices that traditionally have been squashed because the current system ain't working. And that's very clear right now. Love that. And that is one reason why I started this podcast was because most of the voices in the world of self-defense and learning how to keep yourself safe and all of that are our male voices and male experience. 
So I love that you're, you're highlighting that because I'm like, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a question and this may be kind of a, a backwards way of getting around to exactly how you work with people, but can you speak a little bit about what we do that takes away from our power and authority when we speak? Yeah. First of all, as women, a lot of us are uncomfortable standing up tall in a good posture. And some of that is inherited. And a lot of that is from years and years and years of fear of violence. And so we sort of protect our hearts by rounding our shoulders and not taking up so much space, not being visible so that we don't, we aren't noticed and therefore violence won't be put upon us. That's one of the, one of the things we do. And we also, again, because it seems to be much more prominent to judge women, a lot of us have been judged harshly and we don't want to experience that again. And so again, we sort of curl in and take up as little space as possible. So that's one of the ways. Physically, we, we shy away from standing tall and having a big presence. Vocally, you know what it's like if you get, if you're little and, and somebody talks about your feet. I mean, that's, that's, that's actually a personal example, but I've talked to a few people who've had the same thing. I was shy about showing my feet until I was like in my late twenties because a neighbor said that I had little feet and they looked weird. And I was like, Oh, cool. Well, I never want to go through that again. <laughs> so I hid my feet with our voices. So many women that I coach and, and this was true in theater school as well. We're used to speaking at a pleasant volume, not too loud. We don't want to upset anybody. Pleasing, sometimes a bit high pitched, sort of as we do with babies. I mean, babies sort of naturally feel more comfortable with a, with a higher pitched voice. And you'll, if you watch moms with a baby, you sort of speak in a, in a higher pitch. And again, it's, it's, we're trying to be pleasing. We've been taught that that's, that's how we should be. And up talking is another way that we take away from our power. So up-talking is when we inflect upwards at the ends of our sentences. And so if I was to say to you, Cynthia, I heard you have some dogs. And when we speak like that, to the person who's listening, again, whether it's conscious or not, it sounds to the person listening as though you're asking a question. And so often, the sort of underlying feeling is that you're asking for permission to be there. And so... We may have this incredibly value-packed, intelligent speech prepared, but we say it with hunched shoulders, a quiet voice, and up-talking as though, is it okay if I'm here? And so this incredible thing that we have to say is totally diminished by our body language, by our volume, and by our presentation. Yeah. And that is, those are, those are, you know, those are the ways that we give up our power because we're trying to feel comfortable in an uncomfortable situation by thinking back into the ways that we don't really have to be seen. <laughs> and, it, and it takes away from, from, you know, our valuable message. Is that also why so many women use filler words? Well, is that like a real that, thing? <laughs> that's really interesting. I've never thought about the filler words specifically as 
women specific because I, I we do I do actually uh, have to give that note to men as well. But maybe you're right. Well, certainly the um or the yeah, you feel you feel like the thought. Because, oh well, here's another thing, and this is interesting. Silence is incredibly powerful, and when you are silent, you are making the other person sort of fit in that as well. It may be uncomfortable for them, and so if we are trying to please people, then making them sit in silence while they digest what we just said might feel too scary for us, and so we feel like we have to fill it with something. Ooh, that's really interesting because I I worked with a speech coach who really emphasized the powerful pause. Yeah. I know also in studying negotiating that just shutting up and and letting the silence exist is a very powerful negotiating strategy. And and I think that that's kind of the flip side of what a lot of us do when we're talking and we feel kind of nervous and we don't want there to be a silence. Because one of the things about silence is then kind of the attention all focuses on you and the silence. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Well, you have to sit in it too, right? And it's it can be uncomfortable unless you're using it consciously as a tool. I always advocate a lot of silences in uh, a lot of good pausing in your in your presentation. I'm I'm also thinking about how. Many women, especially in the corporate world, preface what they want to say with something like, I'm sorry. One of the things that I like to say when I'm you know, going through my system is come up with a word or a phrase that is specific to you. That's sort of part of your brand, if we want to talk that way, that acknowledges when you've made a mistake, but is not, I'm sorry or sorry, because as audience members, when somebody is speaking to us, if you make a mistake, if you mess up a word, or you skip a paragraph in your speech, or you say something incorrectly, you give the wrong number, let's say, if you're doing a quarterly stat, it's no big deal. People make mistakes, and we are looking for your reaction to understand how we are supposed to react, and so if you sort of get flustered and say sorry and 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 start to lose your confidence or your thread, we start to worry about you. And then we can't really focus on what you're saying because we're sort of worried that you're not going to be able to get it together to finish. And that comes from a place of compassion, but it's also from worry that like, how's this going to go? Because when we have somebody coming up and giving us information, we really just want them to be in charge and for us to sort of take everything in. And so Learning how to correct a mistake in the moment with some kind of acknowledgement that you've made the mistake, but isn't sorry or demeaning to yourself. It's just, oh, I've been essentially, I've made a mistake. I'm going to go on now. We follow along. We take, we're totally fine with that. We want to know that you know that you've made the mistake because some people just try to like gloss over it and pretend like it never happened. But if we actually know that a mistake was made, then, then we get a little bit worried that you're not going to that you're going to make more mistakes and then we won't be getting the correct information. But in the same way that we don't need to apologize for taking up space or speaking, we don't need to apologize for floods or mistakes or, you know, anything else that's happening in the moment. And it really takes away from your power, especially if it, if it, if it messes you up. Yeah. I, I love that you just went there. 
and it's not somewhere I would have necessarily thought to ask you the question <laughs> about when you make a mistake, not apologizing for it. But it, it's funny because what immediately leapt into my mind, I worked with an amazing business coach named Megan Neely for several years and her brand and her energy and everything is all very feminine, very juicy. And her phrase when like something would go wrong or she would make a mistake, I was like, I'm so sexy. And that was just really (laughs) (laughs) came a thing with, with all of us in the group that she was coaching. You know, if one of us would say something silly or, really flub something up. It was like, you're so sexy. I love that. And that group, because of what the group was and because of what her vibe was, that probably wouldn't work too well in a, in a corporate setting, but (laughs) like, what are some of the things that you suggest people say, you know, in lieu of, yeah. uh, One of them could be my mistake and then correct it and move on. Or that wasn't right. Correct it and move on. Something like that. That isn't, that isn't sorry, that, again, it just acknowledges that there is a mistake and it's moving on quickly. So acknowledges but doesn't apologize. Yeah, because, I mean, who cares? Yeah. Nobody actually cares. I mean, unless somebody's out to get you, in, in which case you're dealing with a whole bunch of other stuff in that situation. But, you know, we all make mistakes. and And it's fine. You know, I don't know when it became this, terrible thing to acknowledge when you've made a mistake but it's the same with it's a, it's a problem in, in our society as well with our inability to apologize for things truly apologize for things you know not coming up with this is a whole other conversation obviously but but you know there's nothing wrong with making a mistake own it whatever it is and it, it helps you as well because if you're walking around with I'm getting really far out here but if you're walking around carrying mistakes that you've made that you haven't acknowledged. I mean, that puts you back in a whole other way as well. Yeah. Well, I think that's really powerful. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I'm glad that you went there because I think it's a very powerful thing. And and you're right that if you just gloss over it too, it actually diminishes people's trust in you. Yeah. A really strong leader is very transparent and open and vulnerable. Well, I would love to hear a little bit more because you started off by talking about stance and and how women tend to hold their bodies. What can you do to change that if you find that you are sort of diminishing yourself in your physical presence? What is a good antidote to that? So the first, I I teach my public speaking system with four, four tiers. And the first one is standing. And I teach this through the Alexander Technique, which is which was developed in the late 1800s by a, an Australian actor who started to look, notice that he was losing his voice at the end of his performances. And, and that led him to this discovery of essentially how to carry your body the most effectively. And as it so turns out, also gives you a lot of physical presence. And so Alexander Technique, and I always have to say this as a caveat, I am not an Alexander coach. Alexander coaches have years of experience and thousands of hours of training and client work, but I haven't given permission to teach the Alexander stance, which is 
which is a very basic system of standing. And it's similar to mountain pose in yoga. You begin with your feet on the floor. I'll just, I'll run through it quick and then there's a bit more to it than this, but you begin with your feet on the floor, hip or shoulder width apart. You move up to your knees and make sure they're unlocked. You move up to your hips, unlock your hips. You mildly engage your abdominal muscles because you still need to have your stomach be open as you're taking your deep breath. You have a slight pelvic tilt. Move up to your chest and have it be a 45 degree angle towards the ceiling. You feel your shoulder blades separate slightly. And in that position, you just let your shoulders relax. And so often with posture training, you'll hear, throw your shoulders back. That's, that's what you do. And cer- certainly in the military, that's a really big thing. But in fact, what you're doing as you're, as you're manually thrusting your shoulders back, it changes the entire musculature of your body and, and certainly beginning with your shoulders and your back. And over time, that will have a, a detrimental effect on your body because you can change your physicality. Over time, your muscles learn to shift and, and regroup and, and become more comfortable in certain positions. And so if you're doing it incorrectly, you'll have physical issues later on. And so you allow your shoulders to release in that position. And Alexander, again, is, it's not overnight. It is, it is a commitment to it and it is small changes over time, just like anything that's really valuable. From there, you release your neck and you let your neck be free and easy, as I say. And then you go to the top of your head. Your skull is about 25 pounds and it sits on top of your spine and the top of your spine is behind your eyes and between your ears. And you allow the feeling of the top of your head move towards the ceiling so you're just opening up in that area and then you so you have this idea of your feet firmly planted into the ground and your head moving towards the ceiling so it's this open and active and energized way of standing it also keeps you very at the ready for whatever might be coming at you and it is the least harmful way for you to carry your body through space and and also like looks really strong (laughs) yeah yeah I like that and it sounds very balanced Mm -hmm. yeah and so again yeah it's very similar to mountain pose in that you are creating a very strong core balance center and so you know one of our teachers would come up behind us and sort of bend their knees into our knees to see if and, and if you were if you were rigid in any way you might lose your balance but if you're in your Alexander you just allow yourself to sort of collapse with that and then straighten up again. And it's, it's an awareness of all of these things, because obviously I just told a bunch of different things, but it's an awareness of that and it's a continuous series of adjustments. And so when you're walking, you notice, oh, you know, my right shoulder seems to be a little bit tense. And so you might just turn your attention to that and allow it to release. And then that might trigger something else in your body that you then focus your attention on that and allow that to release. And so it's, it's a constant awareness and it's, it's sometimes you can feel like you're constantly moving with these small little adjustments, but what you're really doing is being very finely tuned to your body and allowing it to, to be open. And again, the energy to flow through you so that uh, you're protecting yourself as you carry your body. That's really cool. I guess one thing that, I was visualizing all of this and kind of feeling it as you were describing. Like, what are you, what are you doing with your arms and your hands? You're just allowing them to to follow. So when your shoulders release, your arms your arms follow with that, and they're at your sides. 
Oh, that's cool. Yeah. With the self-defense training, one of the things that we teach and talk about quite a bit is taking a nonviolent posture if you are in some sort of a confrontation or altercation. And so, you know, we're not talking about taking a big old martial arts stance and looking like you're ready to fight. Basically, exactly what you described, but with your your elbows bent and your hands in front of you, sort of in that, like, hey, yeah, be calm down, you know, no trouble here kind of a place. And, you know, it has all of the advantages of what you were just talking about. And it puts your your hands up and a little, well, and ready to be used to intercept things or to take action. So I, I like that parallel. Yes. And um, I have used it to diffuse situations before where, you know, somebody was being inappropriate at work or I was getting in an argument with somebody and things started to get heated. I have actually just gone from foot to head straight into Alexander and watched how the person reacts to that because I'm basically opening myself right up and being really strong and it changes things. I mean, and real quick. I can, I can see that happening because all of your energy, all of your focus, all of your attention, awareness is all of a sudden right there. And I'm sure that has a very visible impact you know, and, and it's not an aggressive one. It's just like, I'm here, I'm paying attention, I'm present, and I'm full of power. Yes, exactly. It lets the other person know that you value yourself and you're not going to let this happen. I love that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> chills. One thing that you mentioned was about you want your, your core, your abs lightly engaged, but I imagine not too hard because you, were, you said you need to be able to breathe. Is breathing a big component of what you do? It is. It is the very next thing. So after you've figured out how to stand properly, we move into breathing and we focus on breathing in two ways. First of all, there's deep and expansive breaths to support your voice. So the more you take deeper breaths and you are thinking about the six sides, so your left and right, your front and back, your top and bottom. And each time you take a deep breath, You are trying to expand your lung capacity even more because the deeper breaths you can take, the more sort of lung capacity you have, the more support you can have for your voice. And the second part is controlled breathing. And so I'm sure that you teach this self-defense, but controlled breathing is the quickest way for you to let your brain know that you are not in fight, flight, or freeze mode, or you might be but that you are going to take over. Your, your rational brain is going to take over your lizard brain. And so what happens when you're in fight, flight, or freeze mode, and certainly from a public speaking standpoint, it's, it's simply the fear of all of the things we've talked about, fear of judgment, fear of looking stupid, uh, fear of failure. And so what starts to happen are any of the sort of stress responses. So heart rate goes up. The muscles start twitching, so you might have shaking hands or shaking legs. Your chest can get tight, you can get dizzy, uh, stomach cramps, insomnia, headaches, nausea, dry mouth, all of these things, sweating. These are all part of your fight, flight, and freeze mode. And, and that takes over your body and gives you all of these physical sensations, but also clouds your brain and so that you're not actually able to focus. 
And so what your brain is doing is sending stress hormones into your bloodstream. So it's cortisol and adrenaline and causing all of these things to happen. But the great thing is there's a way to control this. And that is with controlled breathing. And essentially any kind of controlled breathing where you are deciding when you're breathing in and when you're breathing out, that sends a signal to your brain that you're not, you know, in immediate danger which you may be, again, because I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the podcast that, that we're talking about, but you still want to be able to think clearly and stay calm. And so what starts to happen is when you're controlling your breathing, your brain will stop sending, you know, the stress hormones into your bloodstream. You will find that you can get grounded again, that you have control over your, your rational faculty and that you have a bit more control over the situation. And so what I, my method of controlled breathing, and there are several, and all of them are right, is I like to teach people to breathe. You start with breathing in for three, you hold for three, and then you release for six. The trick is always to release for longer than you breathe in because it's the breathing out that stimulates your parasympathetic nervous system, which allows you to get calm and focused again. So you go three, three, six, and then you move up to four, four, eight, and five, five, ten. And then you do that for about two or three minutes, let's say ahead of giving a presentation or ahead of a difficult conversation. And it just really gets you into a zone that is helpful for you. That's going to make you calm and clear and ready to go. I love that. And that is so cool that you know, it's very clear for you that you understand in the self-defense world how that applies. Mm-hmm. This thing, working with Coach Tony Blauer, who has over the last 40 years developed something called the SPEAR system. He created something called the cycle of behavior that is how you navigate through fear. And, you know, the scenario always starts with the fear spike. And it within the last few years, he also realized how powerful breathing was in interrupting the fear loop where you just get stuck. Mm-hmm. So powerful. And um, so I just love that, that you're talking about that and, and that you're saying that it doesn't really matter what particular technique you use. It just matters that you use one. Yeah. You, you could just say, breathe in now, body. Breathe out now, body. <laughs> And when you are just, when you are controlling how you are breathing, it stimulates, uh, again, your parasympathetic nervous system so that you, you're more, you're in charge. Your, your rational faculty is in charge, not your, not your lizard brain or, you know, the old. Exactly. Um, yeah. What, what did they, what's the common thing? Uh, when, if a tiger is going to be chasing you, it gets you ready. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, we don't often have tigers. Sometimes we do, but so I'm also, I'm curious. Like if you're in a confrontation that is escalating or you know somebody is approaching you and you get that bad feeling and you just know that the threat is imminent like you don't have minutes to go through this breathing process does it still help if you only manage like two or three breaths so and here's here's a really good point try to practice it every day give yourself 2 minutes at bedtime is great and you know, um, it helps to get you into a, into a more calm place so that sleeping comes a little bit easier too. But here's the cool thing. When you start to practice it and when your body starts to understand what's happening, you can go there quicker. So if you 
get into your habit or ritual of controlled breathing. And let's say that you just decide that you, your controlled breathing is four, four, eight. And so for two minutes every night, you breathe in for four, you hold for four, you release for eight. If you're in a situation, like you were saying, where you're in danger or where you really need to stay calm and focused and you, you, you really don't want to uh, you know, lose your marbles in the moment, you start to do the controlled breathing and your body knows exactly what's happening and it stops the production of cortisol and adrenaline and gets you into that place much quicker because you've been practicing. I feel much better now. <laughs> so cool, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just really cool to think that it, it's such a simple thing to add to the day. I actually, I started doing that as you were saying at bedtime, I didn't know that the fact that I was doing that on a regular basis would actually pay off in the moment. If I have a sudden need to actually kind of get out of that fear loop and into a calmer state. So I, I didn't realize I'd been making an incredible investment. And I said, like, I feel much better now because I was thinking, well, you know, you don't have much time. Violent encounters and things happen very, very rapidly. But there's definitely hope that if you actually practice this on the regular, that you'll be able to tap into it probably without really even thinking too much about doing it. Yes. And that's why it's so important to have a system. Because when you are navigating these, these tricky situations, uh, and I don't mean to use the word tricky lightly, especially when we're talking about violence against women. But when you are navigating these complex and difficult situations, having a system, because you don't know what to do half of the time. You know, somebody's coming at you or something weird is about to happen. And all you can think of, you know, you just immediately lose your ability to use your rational faculty. But what you just go, oh, hey, I know what to do right now. I get into my Alexander and I start to do controlled breathing. And like right away, your body knows, you know what to do because you've been practicing this and your body knows what's happening and it goes into the right state of mind as well. And it gets you there real quick. Yeah. I love that. That's powerful. Yeah. Did you, you said you teach four things. I think we've only covered two. What are, what are the other? So the third one is speaking and the fourth one is reading. So speaking is you sort of have to prepare for speaking. And that's what, what we do when you're standing and breathing. So you've got yourself, your body into the state it needs to be in, in order to be able to produce what is called your optimum pitch. And so your optimum pitch is essentially the most resonant sound that your body can make. And like Alexander technique, it's also the least harmful. So I often work with clients who don't speak properly. They don't know how to use their voice properly. And so they you know, what they might be a teacher and lose their voice by the end of the week or are finding that they don't have the volume that they need or whatever the case might be. And so everything works together. And so you, you have to learn the standing and the breathing before you can get to the speaking. And how you find your optimum pitch, essentially, is you take lots of nice deep breaths, you open yourself up and you, you open up your intercostal muscles, which are the muscles between your ribs, so that they're nice and, and malleable. And then you take a really, really deep breath, and using your diaphragm, you release your breath, and it's on that release where you, you, you allow sound to happen, and slowly you'll begin to find your optimum pitch. And you can feel it resonating in your chest, usually to begin with, 
And then you can start feeling re- feeling it resonate up to the top of your head. And when you're really in the zone, you can start to feel it even at the bottom of your rib cage. So the sound is reverberating against all of the hard surfaces in your body. So your ribs, your hard palate, your cheekbones, the top of your head. But you've got to open up all of those areas. You've got to relax the muscles so the sound doesn't get trapped in your muscles. You've got to open all of that up so that the sound can even get to those those sort of more far away hard surfaces. And I mean, there's nothing more powerful than a loud and resonant voice. It's commanding. We naturally respond to it. I mean, think of all the radio stars that, that you know. Think about Howard Stern's voice or, you know, they all have the same quality in their voice. And it is a resonance and people really respond to that. It signifies authority. And it also, again, the, the cool thing is it's also the least harmful on your voice. It's from an open place. It's very resonant. And you are able to sustain it for longer because you're, you're speaking properly. You are causing the least amount of damage on your body. I mean, we've all had that before where you go out to a restaurant that's really loud or you go to a concert and you're talking to your friend and you have to talk over the noise and you have to talk over the, the band sometimes and you sort of lose your voice by, by the end of it. And that's because we're trying to force volume from our throat. And over time, I just had a client recently. She's a professor and she had to teach back to back three-hour classes on Thursdays and then another one on Friday. And she would find by the end of Friday, she just she had no voice. Her voice was totally fried. And we realized that she, was, she wasn't standing well, but she also was forcing volume from her throat. And you can sort of, you can, once, you, once your ears start to become attuned to this stuff, you can tell what's a safe way of speaking and what isn't a safe way of speaking. And so you can start to notice when people trying to push volume from their throat instead of using their natural resonance uh, in an open body. I just, I'm sitting here just kind of mind boggled because I had no idea (laughs) was anything like an optimum pitch, but it's, it's so cool. And, you know, think about how most women get dismissed, right. Is like for being shrill or for, Mm for nagging or for being too high pitched and whiny and, you know, all of, all of that. So just realizing that you can actually change the pitch of your voice into something that is more resonant and has more depth and warmth and power in it is just, that's like a game changer to be able to do that and to be the antidote to all of these common, you know, complaints and criticisms and judgments about women and women's voices. I had no idea that was possible. It is possible. And I, and I just, I want to, I want to speak to that a little bit because I think this is really important as well. There's an old story about how Margaret Thatcher went to a speech therapist when she was trying to become the prime minister of England because she was often dismissed in parliament for how her voice sounded. And I believe that I've read that Hillary Clinton did the same thing where they both went to voice coaches and when people come to me and say, I don't like the pitch of my voice, I want to lower it. 
the first thing I say is, okay, for who? Because if we're going to work together, I want you to understand that we're working on your voice so that you're speaking safely and learning how to speak powerfully, but not just because you want to change your voice to suit what somebody else thinks you should sound like. And so often, I mean, people will sort of have like a nasally high-pitched voice and that is their natural resonance and they just learn how to, you know, imbibe it with like a, like a big bunch of power. And it's really important to note that you are doing something positive for yourself as opposed to changing to fit in. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you're, you're learning how to tap into your natural power, which is right there that maybe you've never actually learned how to tap into, you know, to use a part of your body that actually has some amazing capacity and abilities that none of us, we never, when we're growing up, we don't learn how to talk. (laughs) I know. And that's, and that's what it was in, in theater school. We were we just all were thinking like, everybody should know this. <laughs> exactly. And, and it really is another avenue for stepping into your own power and being able to take a stand for yourself and hold space for yourself as being able to use your voice like this for yourself. And so finding the optimum pitch, whether that's, that's, actually fairly high pitched or medium pitched or low pitched. Like what really matters is it's the optimum pitch for you, not that it's somebody else's preferred pitch that they would rather be listening to because that's yes. not powerful for you. And in fact, it's harmful. Yes. And the optimum pitch also has the added bonus of giving you a big blast of volume and power when you need it. So when you need to bust out that big, badass voice, (laughs) it's there for you. It's very helpful for mothers in a pandemic right now. (laughs) (laughs) I I like it. I I like that it is something that is, I mean, it's it's like with what I teach with self-defense. Like it's something that's in us that we don't know how to tap into unless we actually learn. Yeah into it. And then it's like, well, my God, like everybody should know this. And it's, it's something that once you learn it and you tap into it, you never forget it because it's actually part of you. Yes, absolutely. So what was, what was the last part reading? How, what does that? So reading is, it's taking every, it's, it's all, it's all of the pieces culminating for when you're giving a presentation. So when you're presenting a speech, for example, I always advocate writing the whole thing out word for word, exactly how you want to say it, organized exactly in the way that you want it to be said. And then we use a system called text mapping to mark up your text. And the first thing you do is breath bars. And so the breath bars are, you know, like backslashes on your computer. And those go at every place of punctuation. So your commas, your semicolons, and your periods. And they indicate every place that you will be taking a breath. So sometimes people say, I've got five commas in a sentence. I don't have to take five breaths, do I? And I say, yes, you do. And here's, here's how we navigate that. So you absolutely must have enough breath to support your voice to get you to the end of the sentence. 
because often the end of your sentence is the most important part of the sentence. It's summarized everything that you've just said. And then you take a nice breath at the end of that. Again, we were talking about pauses, giving a pause for the audience to be able to digest everything you've just said. We take top-up breaths at the other points in the sentences, so commas, semicolons, and they are just to give you a little bit of extra breath power so that you don't run out of breath by the time you get to the end of the sentence. And they are also a place for a, for a little mini pause because the commas and the semicolons are also breaking up the sentence into sort of digestible chunks. And that, again, gives the audience the opportunity to be able to digest what you've just said. And this part is cool. It's like one of my favorite things. When you put in breath bars in your speech, you are also controlling where you're taking a breath. And as we've already learned, when we control our breathing, we stay out of fight, flight, or freeze mode. You can stay calm and focused and diminish your stress response while you're delivering your speech. So it's like, it's so cool. So you've, you've mapped up your text, and then there's other things that we do as well. You can inflect upwards or downwards. We were talking a bit about up-talking before. For people who are really guilty of that, I suggest putting a downward arrow at the end of every sentence so that you remember to finish your sentence with power instead of inflecting upwards. And then there's a few other things that you can do to mark it up. And then you practice something called think, breathe, speak which is where you're reading three to seven words ahead of what you're speaking. And so when you're reading three to seven words ahead of what you're speaking, you're also seeing how you've marked up your text and reminding yourself of how you wanted to present this. And <laughs> can you tell how much I love this stuff? Not only that, but you're giving yourself a buffer of three to seven words so that you can then look up and you've got, three to seven words that you can direct to people in the audience and make eye contact, which people really respond to. It helps them be able to feel engaged with you and to be able to retain what you're saying to them. That's cool. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's a really powerful way to actually work with material when you're going to be speaking in front of a group, which is for most people, the most terrifying thing ever to do. Oh yeah. It's the reason I have a job. <laughs> Yes. I'm curious how this would translate to a more informal setting. Well, you know, I was thinking about it. Sometimes if you are contemplating uh, a difficult conversation, what you may want to do is write out word for word exactly how you want to say something and then use your tools, your text mapping tools to mark it up. And then you don't have to think about it in the moment. You've already decided exactly how you want to say it. And you just sort of memorize it so that you can deliver it in a coherent and powerful way in the moment. So, you know, for things like a job interview, for example, I always say, write out exactly how you would like to respond to the, the five best questions you could be asked that really highlight your strengths. Talk about your passion for the work that you're doing. You know, when we're in this downtime, figure out all of the words that you want to use. Because I don't know about you, but I really struggle with words sometimes in the moment. You know, I can get stuck on a noun and then I can't remember it and then I can get flustered. So if you decide ahead of time how you want to prepare something and then you really work on it, 
when you go to deliver it, it is polished, it is clear, it is very well presented, and it's incredibly effective in that way as well. That's neat. You're sparking all kinds of thoughts in my head right now. Uh, I love it. That's great. Yeah, because one of the things that we do in our courses is teach women how to create mental blueprints of potential scenarios that they might be in and to kind of visualize and think through, well, if this were the, the scenario, what would I do or what could I do? And to come up with several different options for that. And one of the things I'm thinking is like when I run scenario training with women, it's really common for them to just not breathe from the beginning to the end. You know, like they, they get into it, they're scared, they go through it all. And then you hear, you, you literally hear them go, <gasps> yeah, they've been holding their breath the whole entire time. Yeah. And that one thing that I could do to make scenario training and creating these mental blueprints even more powerful is to remind women, like you need to remember to breathe. And so if you train like that, if you incorporate breathing as you're going through a scenario, then if you're ever in a situation that's similar to that, you will remember to breathe. Yes. And you know, Cynthia, a way you could do that is sometimes if I don't have, so I, I have created this animated gift that I that I bust out and it, it leads me through the breathing process. So it, it counts out the seconds for me, breathe in, one, two, three, four, five, hold, two, three, four, five out two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And it's a loop. So it, it just keeps going. And I I pull that out whenever I really want to get calm and focused. But when I don't have that available to me, what I do is I tap with my fingers. And so I go my thumb, second finger, third finger, fourth finger, fifth finger, as I'm tapping. And then I know to hold for one finger, two finger, three finger, you know, you can see that happening. And so if somebody needed sort of a stimulus to be able to remember to breathe, you could have them practice just tapping with their fingers. And that, that you know, the tapping would help them remember how to breathe and, and stay calm and focused. Oh, I love that. And I am yeah. in a situation, it's what often happens, especially in intimate partner or domestic violence situations, uh, even if it's not physical, if it's just just verbal and emotional stuff, what often happens is like the, the barrage starts, you know, the verbal assault starts. Mm. And this is a tool where as the onslaught starts and you know, you kind of have to weather that ambush. If you can use this little technique of using your fingers, I mean, breathing is a pretty invisible process unless you make it super obvious, but would be a great help for how to sort of keep your composure as the storm is starting to break. Yeah. Yeah. Swept away, you know, on the tide and just get turned into well, what happens is women freeze because they just get terrified. Yep. And this can really help That's you my- oxygenate your body and give your brain the fuel that it needs. And, and it's very simple and not visible. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And it's powerful because it's actually, you know, it's giving you something to focus on, which can sometimes it, it, it having something to focus on gives you a demeanor of power as well because you're doing something even if the other person doesn't necessarily know what that is and that can jump them out of whatever sort of damaging tirade they might be on as well yeah oh this is really cool man we have gone to some really interesting places in this conversation and i thought i know (laughs) yeah yeah but i didn't realize how much it was going to intersect i love it Yeah, this is really cool. 
Well, we've been on for a little bit more than an hour, so I guess it's time for us to wrap up. And I, I have one more question that I have to ask you. Okay. Then we'll wrap it up. So how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Practice. Commit to practicing. Learn your system and practice it. And then slowly start to incorporate it into your life. Find something innocuous where you can show your courage, whether it's somebody at work that's bothering you or somebody who, you know, gives you difficulty. And start to plan out ahead of time how you're going to manage situations and start small. And the more wins you get, the more courageous you feel and the more comfortable and confident because you can see it working. And if it doesn't work, always commit to trying again because many people have used these systems. And when you really get them right, they really do work. And that I think is, is the main thing. It's, it's committing to yourself to learn the systems and to try them and to keep practicing them so that you can use them when you need them. Because you can't, this stuff is not the kind of stuff, you can't just bust it out when you when you need it if you haven't been practicing it. It, it is a muscle that you have to keep working on. And so when you say systems, which which ones are you primarily thinking of? Well, I mean, you know, the public speaking system, so the standing and the breathing and the speaking and and your system of, you know, you've got lots of different tools and, and ways of navigating situations. So go back to those systems so that you are relying on your knowledge that you've already undertaken instead of, you know, trying to flail around in a situation. You know what to do. You've been taught what to do. And so use that in the moment. Does that answer your question? Uh, that's great. And I think it's, it's really cool because often, you know, we go off and we'll read a book or, you know, we'll, we'll do a workshop or something and, and think, oh, now I got it. You know, I got it. And then we don't actually go out and apply it. And it gets a little rusty or then we have a need for it. And it's not like right immediately there and accessible. So I think you're right that if you, if you do go and you do invest the time, the effort and energy in learning a system and learning the tools, just go ahead and continue with that next step of incorporating it into your daily practices and into your normal life. And don't feel like you have to do the big thing. Just keep your hand and keep it in your consciousness and, and use steps. I, I love that. Yeah, the baby steps that they really they give you they give you the, the the little wins that you need to to feel encouraged to keep continuing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. That is a super insightful read on how you can actually develop power and courage. And it actually it doesn't really matter what it is, what set of tools we happen to be talking about. It's really part of the journey of mastery in anything. You know, like even with you with your guitar, right? Learning guitar and becoming very good at it is its own journey of developing personal power. Yeah. And I'm sure that along the way you have developed a lot of courage to do that. I mean, even the the act of picking up a guitar and, and strumming it for the first time and then taking a lesson and doing your first recital or something like that or getting up and playing in public and you know, it's, it's one step at a time and each step is a bit of a stretch 
and that's that's where the opportunity to to grow in your courage actually is. You're right. Yep. It's 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 doing it, and and uh, yeah, like you said, it's starting small and uh, and growing from there. Because you know the problem with starting too big is you're probably not going to be able to do it exactly the way you hoped to, and then you might get discouraged and then think, oh, this doesn't work, and throw it all out, as opposed to you know starting sort of smaller and trusting trusting in the work and seeing how it can really unfold for you. Well, I guess that's the other really important thing that you referred to that I may be obscured a little bit there, but you know, when you're talking about learning a system, you're talking about something, I mean, in your case, the, the, the system that you're talking about goes back many, many years, if not more than a century, some parts of it. And Mm -hmm. a lot of what I teach in the self-defense realm has been built over decades of experience, not just mine, but working with the the coaches that I work with. I mean, they have decades and decades of of experience building the system. So there's been a lot of effort put into it. And we can trust that these systems actually do work because they would not have, have survived and persisted and continued to hold value over time the way they have if they didn't work. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Oh man, what a what a fun conversation. I'm so glad that you know we just kind of ran with it and went in all kinds of different directions because there were so many unexpected connections and surprises along the way. This has just been a ton of fun. Yes, I agree. I've really enjoyed this conversation a lot. Well, I am so glad that you have come on the show and and before we go, I want you to share how people can connect with you because I'm sure that there are going to be some listeners who want to follow up and and reach out to you. So, can you share the best ways to do that? Sure. The first thing, I have a a free public speaking guide and it goes into more detail about the system that I just talked about, the standing, breathing, speaking and reading. And you can get that at my website at www.ubuskills.com. You sign up for my mailing list and you get that delivered right to your inbox. And I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash ubuskills. And it's the letter U, the letter B, and the other letter U. And it translates to you being yourself. And so what I try to do is build upon the things about you that are unique and cool and amazing. And, and, and make them be very powerful, help you figure out how to present them in a powerful way, as opposed to, you know, trying to emulate somebody else or something else that somebody else thinks is cool. We start from you as the base point. I'm on Instagram at UBU Skills as well. And I'm always up for conversations as, you know, I think as is evident in this, in this chat today. I love jamming on this stuff. So I'm always happy to field questions and talk about this further. And so if your listeners have any questions, please do email me and I, and I will always email you back and help you figure something out if something is confusing. Oh, that's great. And I got to say, so I'm glad you explained what the UBU really was, because when I first saw that, it was before we had spoken and I looked it up, I thought it was some sort of like an African something, you know? It was oh like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I- your website and I looked at it and I was like, there's this like most amazing rainbow prancing unicorn on your website. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What <do> I, <laughs> a unicorn is a, is very symbolic for me and it, oh man, that's a whole other big long story, but it, 
unicorns have been really important in my life uh, and certainly in my in my relationship with my husband. We've got some backstory there. And the unicorn on my logo, I commissioned my friend who's a watercolor painter to do that. And then I sort of based all of my branding on that, colors and everything, because I, I just loved it so much. Well, and it's just right in line with exactly how you explained you be you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Megan Hamilton, it has been an absolute delight to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show with me today. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure. What an enjoyable conversation with you today. And I'm always so pumped to, to figure out ways that to empower women. And, you know, you're doing incredible work as well. And I'm really happy to have connected with you. Thank you. And likewise. Well, this has been the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.